Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, it's been almost a year and a half now, and COVID-19 has changed our lives in many ways. Not only how we shop, how we educate our kids, how we play, how we work, how we work out, but also how we spend those extra hours at home. In fact, every survey shows that Americans are reading more books, watching more television, screening more films, and listening to more music than ever before. So what could be better than a book about the golden age of movies, television, and music with a little politics thrown in for good measure. Well, we're lucky. That book is here. It's called Rock Me on the Water by CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. A great new book on the magic hour of film, television, music, and politics in Los Angeles in 1974. It's the fascinating story of a convergence of talent all working together in the same place at the same time. Names like Norman Lear, Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, Carol O'Connor, Mary Tyler Moore, Alan Alda, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell, Don Henley, Jerry Brown, wow, and so many others, never seen before or since. We caught up with Ron Brownstein at his home in Los Angeles. Ron Brownstein, hello, hello. Good to reconnect with you. Congratulations on the new book. It's great. Loved it. Loved it. Thank you. It's so good to be with you, Bill, and, and to have a chance to, to catch up. Uh, uh, hope you're well and, and looking forward to this. Everything's good. Rock me on the water. Uh, first, let's talk about a little rocking on the water here in Washington, D.C. on the political scene. Liz Cheney will be out of a job. At least she'll be out of leadership. Kevin McCarthy making it official. He wants to bounce her because... She will not sign on to the big lie. Ron, what does this say about the Republican Party? Well, I mean, this is a really stark, I think, moment for the Republican Party because we know that, you know, all the evidence is that at the coalition level itself, at the voter level itself, this is now predominantly a Trump party. You know, three quarters yep. of Republicans say the election was stolen. Uh, you know, comparable percentages say Trump has done nothing wrong since the election. Uh, they, many of them will even minimize what happened on January 6th. But that leaves roughly 20 to 25 percent, sometimes 30 percent, depending on the way the question is phrased, of Republicans who are uneasy in fact, with everything that has happened since the election, who don't like Mm -hmm. the way Trump uh, behaved after November, who are horrified by January 6th. And what the House Republicans are doing is sending that portion of the party, a minority, but a significant minority, uh, an unequivocal message that you are now the subordinate piece of the party. I mean, you could not more clearly say that those Republic to those Republicans who aren't easy with everything that Trump did, well, we're not going to be listening to you. 
I mean, we are we are putting all of our eggs in his basket. And, you know, Bill, I don't know what's going to happen to those voters going forward. Um, uh, you know, obviously, McCarthy et al. are hoping that they are so alienated by what Joe Biden and Democrats are doing that they quietly stay in a party where they are being told, as I say, unequivocally and very clearly that you are the subordinate wing now. But I mm-hmm. do think there is some risk that at least some of those voters uh, may continue to drift away from the party. Don't forget, Joe Biden did better than any Democratic nominee, I would say, ever in the history of, you know, since modern polling among college-educated white voters. And you could see that there, you know, in the same way people say, well, if Democrats hit bottom in rural America, maybe, maybe not. But in the same thing is true. I mean, if you keep sending these kind of signals that we are in for a kind of an anti-democratic assault on democracy uh, and and a def- defiance of, uh, you know, the evidence in front of your face, uh, you know, basically everyone having to accept this big lie, Republicans could lose a few more points in the suburbs and among college educated voters as well. And I think that is the, the risk they are courting. Maybe not in 2022, you know it very well, smaller electorate, right. uh, fractionated over hundreds of, of local elections. But when you get to 2024, and, and you have the big electorate and the central question of which side do you trust to run the country, the refusal of Republicans to separate themselves from this kind of extremism, I think, is going to cost them. Uh, and as far as the rest of the, the let's say it's 25 percent who, who don't buy the big lie, the 75 percent, I mean, Kevin McCarthy is basically saying, as I see it, um, the Republican Party stands for this. Joe Biden lost. Donald Trump yeah. One and you got to believe that to be a true Republican. It, it going into twenty twenty two is that going to be their main message? Going into twenty twenty four, are they still going to be fighting twenty twenty? And and is that smart? Well, I think I think the, I think the, 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 it's possible that twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four will have similar dynamics, but I think it is more likely they will have very different dynamics. Uh-huh. Um, I think this is I think this is an enormous risk them because it is basically doubling down further on a, a strategy of perpetually outraging and energizing and mobilizing the Trump base, which as the census data that just came out shows non-college whites who are the cornerstone of that Trump coalition fell below 40% of the vote in 2020 for the first time ever, even though their turnout soared. I mean, Trump, tur- I mean, Trump, does turn out voters. There's no question about it. And I think the non-college white share uh, turnout rose like six points from 2016, hit 64%. But even with that heroic turnout, their share of the vote declined further because uh, there are just fewer of them. I mean, they're, they're a smaller yeah. share of the eligible voters. So more turn, they were squeezing, you know, more blood out of a shrinking stone and it still wasn't enough to prevent that from shrinking. Now, obviously, yeah. you know, people are listening saying, well, what about Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? That's true. The change isn't as big there, but the overall, you know, the overall trajectory is pretty clear that Trump has committed the Republican party to a strategy of squeezing bigger margins out of shrinking groups. And there is no business in the world that would follow that as their business model. And what McCarthy is doing with this is really doubling down on that because he is saying, as you as you noted, that we are going to, yes, we are going to express the full unfiltered blast of conspiracy theory of the Trump base, even at the risk of further pushing away the voters who have been drifting away from the party over the last few years. 
I think they have a better chance of surviving that bet in 2022 than 2024 mm-hmm. because the electorate is smaller and all that. But, you know, if you're talking about 2024, uh, they are, I think, creating an environment in which it's going to be very hard for someone to be the nominee who kind of forthrightly acknowledges reality of what happened. And I think that's going to be an issue. Uh, and in terms of shrinking the base or shrinking uh, the electorate, that's the parallel strategy, right, that we see in these voter suppression efforts, which is basically the fewer people that vote, the better we do. So therefore, right. well, look, I mean, I, 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 have descri- I have described what's happening in these red states as Republicans stacking sandbags against a rising demographic tide. So on the one hand, you know, you have the dynamic I just mentioned, which is that uh, the Republican Party uh, has become increasingly dependent on the votes of white voters without a college degree and also white Christians, you know, religiously conservative white Christians. Well, those non-college whites have been falling as a share of the vote about two points every cycle. Every, every four years. Mm-hmm. And the college whites have been increasing a little and uh, people of color have been increasing a lot. And in fact, in the census uh, data that just came out, you know, it's again, there are, there are multiple efforts to kind of understand what the electorate looks like. Um, but in the census data, which is one of the best ones that we have, um, as I said, non-college whites fell below 40% of the total vote. College whites were about 31 and people of color were 29. Um, as recently as 2004, those non-college whites were an absolute majority of the voters and people of color were only 21% of the voters. So um, they are kind of looking at this. And uh, and in fact, in many of the states that we're talking about, whether it's Georgia or Texas or Arizona, uh, Florida, I'm pretty sure as well, a majority of everybody who turns 18 every year is already kids of color. Okay, so Mm -hmm. like Texas is looking at a very clear demographic imperative. In fact, in Texas, Bill, uh, in the census data, non-college whites fell below 30 percent of the vote for the first time ever. So I think what you're seeing is very consistent across these states. (laughs) I mean, you, you, you have an effort to make it tougher to vote precisely as demographic change is transforming the electorate in a, in, a, in a direction that could make things tougher for Republicans. And, you know, obviously Democrats face a huge choice at the national level. I mean, you have you have these votes passing on a party line basis in state after state where Republican legislators and governors are trying to tilt the playing field in their direction. And then you have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in Washington saying, in the name of bipartisanship, we're not going to get involved in trying to stop these partisan coups mm-hmm. in the state, um, you know, and we won't end the filibuster to pass HR one and the national voting standards. It, it, it's paradoxical, but it will be certainly one of the greatest unforced errors in political history if Democrats choose to allow this kind of partisan offensive to go through unimpeded in the name of promoting bipartisanship. I mean, it's just it's kind of illogical even to finish the sentence. Well, yeah, and you wonder about uh, Joe Biden, who seems to. Th- seems to focus, be focusing on delivering the goods, right? Getting things done, even if he has to with all uh, Democratic votes. Is that, do you think, the best strategy for Biden, just to plow ahead and get things as much done as he can in this next two years? That that is the strategy. I think clearly, I mean, Biden is defining himself around bread and butter, kitchen table issues as much as he can, checks in the pocket, 
shots in the arm and now right. shovels, shovels in the ground, right? I mean, checks, shots, yeah. shovels. Um, and uh, it is likely that the next few months will be defined by that and by the recon- the battle over what will inevitably, I think, have to get back to reconciliation in some form or another. It's highly unlikely there are 10 Republicans for anything that Biden wants to do on the economic side, except for the narrowest possible definition of infrastructure that isn't paid for. And you know, whether Manchin and Cinema force him to do that and then leave Democrats on their own to pass everything else on a party line basis through reconciliation. I mean, that would also be a, a pretty strange political calculation, although one I, one I can't rule out. But in any case, at some point later this summer, if you go back through the history of when these things pass, uh, this is going to be resolved one way or the other. The, the, right. the infrastructure plan is going to be resolved. The, the family's plan is going to be resolved. And at that point, Biden is going to be standing there. You know, the tide will have gone out and you will have had immigration passed by the House. You'll have gun control passed by the House, LGBTQ rights passed by the House, uh, voting rights passed by the House. Um, uh, what am I missing? Women's pay equity passed by the House. I mean, all of these things will be there and all of them will be on track to be killed in the Senate unless they can figure out a way to get Manchin Cinema and maybe some others to uh, reform the filibuster in some way, or even to carve out what uh, our friend John Alter calls the democracy exception for um, voting rights and uh, the, the kind of the voting rules of H.R. 1 and maybe the Voting Rights Act. And I think that will be the dominant question of Biden's presidency after about September on. You know, does delivering the goods ensure you a good 2020? 2022, I think that's what they're betting. I think the evidence is is much murkier than that. I mean, it, 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 it there's no guarantee that um, really providing material help uh, to culturally conservative Republican, you know, blue collar rural voters is gonna is gonna shift them. And then then you face the question of if they don't create this national floor of election rules, is that enough by itself to ensure that mm-hmm. they lose the house? Right, right. It depends, of course, on how well they sell that package and how well they sell their progress, I guess. Uh, Ron, a recent column of yours I saw, you called, you, you used the term Bidenomics. Um, yeah. You know, saying that basically Biden, the, the economic program of Biden compared to Obama, compared even to Clinton, is pretty radical, right? Pretty, it's pretty it's revolutionary. Different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, we know the top line difference is pretty obvious that he's willing to propose a lot more in new spending than either of them were willing to do. Um, but his underlying assumptions are, are, I think, fundamentally have fundamentally diverged in a way that reflects a shift in the center of gravity among Democrats since the Clinton presidency, obviously, but even since the Obama presidency on the causes and cures of inequality, class inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality. You know, the, the dominant theory in the Clinton years uh, and even in the Obama years was that um, the skills gap largely uh, explained uh, widening inequality in American society. The idea that in a world of more global competition and automation, that there was a premium, the skills premium that was being paid to people with advanced education uh, and uh, was making um, kind of uh, jobs that did not require advanced education more generic, easily replicated around the world, more easily replaced by a robot. And thus, there was a widening uh, gap or premium to education. Um, You know, that theory uh, faced 
uh, the theory has some merits, but it could not explain the slowdown in the growth of living standards, even for people with advanced education, uh, as as kind of the, the 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 story went along. And there was you know a pushback on that from the beginning uh, on mm-hmm. the left of the Democratic Party. So it was really more of an issue of power in the workplace and whether workers had the capacity to uh, win in earnings the increased productivity that they were in fact achieving. And I think in the Biden, you know, very clearly in the Biden presidency, I mean, I've talked to the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. I've talked to the Treasury Secretary. I've talked to a chief economist in the Labor Department. I've talked to other senior economists uh, in the White House. Um, and now the, the theory that, you know, education is now viewed as necessary, but not sufficient for closing this closing um, inequality. Um, right. You know, I mean, he's, he's putting a lot of money into education, universal pre-K uh, and universal community college, really taking us from 13 to 17 years of publicly funded education. It would be an historic uh, change. But they don't say that that alone is going to reverse the trends that we have seen. They believe there have to be more direct interventions in shaping the power relationships in the economy, whether it's the minimum wage mm-hmm. uh, or whether it's um, uh, you, you know uh, trying to make it easier to unionize. And at the same time, they have moved away from Clinton and Obama on another related fundamental um, kind of tenet or, or pillar of democratic economics, which was both Clinton and Obama were heavily influenced by the work of William Julius Wilson, the great black sociologist in the 70s and 80s, who argued that universal programs, programs that benefited everyone of need, uh, were a better strategy both economically and politically to, uh, than race-targeted programs uh, to try to close racial gaps. And you know that was very prevalent in the Clinton years. It was very prevalent even in the Obama years. Obama talked about it. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, in one interview, said, uh, "This is my biggest dispute with blacks. You know, black activists. They want me to do more targeted programs, and I uh, think I have to focus on oh, yeah. on everybody." Biden has moved on that. I mean, Biden is more willing to target by race and gender than certainly Clinton and even Obama. So even as he has proposed things like the fourteen hundred dollar check and the child tax credit to uh, be more universal by income. He's going higher up the income ladder uh, than Democrats had done previously. And that goes to the theory that you alluded to before, that if you kind of improve people's material condition, maybe they'll be more likely to support you. But even as he's become more universal by income, he has become more targeted by race. And in that way, both that and the shift away from the skills gap as the explanation for inequality kind of gives you a pretty comprehensive shift on both, as I say, the causes and cures of both class inequality, gender inequality, and racial inequality. Very different. Ron Brownstein, our guest, Ron uh, Brownstein, you see him on CNN, uh, you read him in The Atlantic, and you read his new book, Rock Me on the Water. Ron, we're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Spot and come back and talk uh, television, film, music, and politics. Podcast with Ron Brownstein brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the Teamsters Union, the largest and most diverse of all of Americans' labor unions, 1.4 million strong. Under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, the Teamsters include vegetable workers in California, brewers in St. Louis, construction workers in Las Vegas, bakery workers in Maine, as they say, everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at teamster.org. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery 
starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod with uh, Ron Brownstein, author of the great new book, Rock Me on the Water. So Ron... Uh, 1974, you paint the picture, you call it the magic hour in Los Angeles, really the golden age of film, mm -hmm. television, music, and politics, as I read and enjoyed the book. How did it happen? Why in Los Angeles, of all places? Yeah, really, really good questions. Um, so, um, uh, I think what we're looking at in the early 1970s in pop culture is that this is the moment when the social changes put forward by the 60s, when the critique of American mm -hmm. life that emerged from the social movements of the 1960s was cemented into pop culture. And therefore, and from there into the way that we lived, you know, All came you together, back, right? All together, all together at the same time, all driven by the same force, which was uh, the need for these industries to respond to the growing power of the massive baby boom generation, uh, which influenced, which changed culture before it changed politics. Um, uh, and in fact, arguably, even over the long run, changed culture more than it ever changed politics, because the baby boom was not as monolithically liberal as it was assumed to be. Uh, you know, it, it's a little known fact that 1972 was the first year of exit polls, and Richard Nixon actually won most white people under 30 in 1972. Oh. But but the but the liberal side of the baby boom that fueled all of the big social movements of the 1960s put a lot of new ideas into the bloodstream. I mean, greater suspicion of authority in business and government, more autonomy for women, changing relations between men and women, new attitudes about family and marriage and sex, more kind of assertive uh, 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 pursuit of rights and inclusion uh, among from African-Americans and uh, gays and other groups, Hispanics, other groups that had been marginalized. Um, there were a lot of ways in which the kind of the received wisdom of America in, you know, 1961 and 1962 uh, was challenged in, in, uh, by these movements, some of which you, you know, uh, were, were, were very, very aware of the environmental movement. 
right? Um, right. And uh, through the 60s, as I, as I show in the book, um, TV and, mu- and movies in particular tried their best to ignore all of this, right? Walter Cronkite, as I write, spent half an hour every night documenting all of the fissures opening in American life. And then the networks would spend the next three and a half hours trying to erase all of that from people's <laughs> minds. Right. I mean, you had the Beverly Hillbillies, you had Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, the Andy Griffith show, Gunsmoke, all of these kind of tributes to the simple wisdom of rural life. We didn't get any closer to uh, Vietnam than Gomer Pyle and McHale's Navy, Hogan's Heroes. Um, And then, of course, the movies um, were largely the same. I mean, there were some very good movies made, but it was The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins and The Longest Day and The Great Escape and uh, you know, Ben, uh, 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 Lawrence of Arabia, um, mm-hmm. it, 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 Dr. Zhivago. I mean, it, it, they, they did not grapple with what was happening around them. Now, music was forced to respond sooner because a bigger share of their audience was composed of the young people who were in the middle of all of these changes. But the story I tell is how uh, in Hollywood, starting in 67 with Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, but really accelerating after Easy Rider in 69, and, and I argue culminating in 1974, and the same thing in television, really beginning in fall of 1970 when Mary Tyler Moore goes on the air, but the absolute turning point being in January 1971 when CBS puts on All in the Family, something unlike anything that had ever appeared on right. television before. What you saw is that uh, both movies and um, TV joining music in kind of embracing this new set of values and experiences and being the bridge between ideas that have been insurrectionary when first advanced in the 60s and a mass American audience uh, in the early 1970s, a process that I think culminated in 1974. Well, I have to tell you, you know, uh, having lived in L.A. and having lived through this, I got to L.A. just a couple of years after this, um, and and hanging out at the Troubadour and hanging out at mm. Dantana's <laughs> and knowing most of these people, I I did not realize what a huge, significant period we were living through. Let's start. Yeah. You mentioned television. But as you say, uh, the, you, you mentioned Archie Bunker, Mary Tyler Moore, Carol Burnett, you know, mm. go down the list. Um, and MASH, uh, this was the Saturday night, right, was the greatest right. night probably ever in the history of television. Yeah, it was called that. The, the Saturday night, the, there was the one year, fall 73 through spring 74 on CBS, was the one year that All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, as well as Bob Newhart and Carol Burnett were all together on the same night. Oh, and, God. And, uh, and has been called the greatest night in, in television history. And that year, 1974, is also the same year that Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, The Eagles, and Joni Mitchell all put out career-redefining albums. It's also the same year of arguably, I'm trying to remember another, I mean, you'd have to go back to the 40s to have two films of the magnitude of Chinatown and Godfather Part Two dueling for the Oscar in the same year, as well as other movies like The Conversation and the filming of Shampoo, Nashville, and Jaws. And Nashville and Jaws, I I think are really important to understand in, in kind mm-hmm. of, kind of bookends. I'll come back to that. But you know, what's interesting, Bill is like in talking to people, you know, I interviewed over a hundred people. I, many of the, many of the, of the folks who created all of this art, whether it's uh, Warren Beatty and uh, Norman Lear and Jane Fonda and Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown and Graham Nash and everything, a lot of people talked to me and there was an understanding 
vertically within each of these silos that something big was going on. You know, I mean, Rob Reiner yeah. talked about watching MASH and Mary Tyler Moore and being really proud to be part. And James L. Brooks, who was the creator of Mary Tyler Moore, you know, talked about watching All in the Family. And Irving Azoff, who was the manager of the Eagles, talked to me about, uh, you know, just as he said, there was something magical, you know, from Hollywood to Malibu. And obviously, Warren Beatty and Robert Town. Um, uh, Town wrote both Chinatown and Shampoo, Shampoo with Beatty. You know, talking about how they they recognize that they were giving more leeway than any generation of filmmakers before them in terms of what they could put on the screen, the stories they could tell, and how they could tell them. But I think what people didn't see was outside of their silo and and kind mm-hmm. of kind of understanding how much of all of this was happening at once at the same time. And even politically with, with Jerry, Jerry Brown's election in 1974, bringing into the political arena, I would argue really for the first time, some of the same themes, uh, the same critiques of American life that were infusing all this popular culture. I mean, like Jerry Brown, you know, who you later worked for, wins the Democratic gubernatorial nomination in June 1974 on a program of political reform two weeks before Chinatown is released and is described correctly by one reviewer as Watergate with real water. You know, he was kind of, he was kind of surfing to, to torture the metaphor further. He was kind of surfing that same wave. Um, and um, all of this was happening together. I would argue it was all happening because these industries felt the need to make themselves relevant to the values and experiences of a new generation uh, that were becoming an increasing part of their consumer base. Uh, And thus, a window opened for the expression of ideas uh, and experiences. Because, you know, I mean, we're starting to tell the first, we're starting to see the first African-American lead characters on television, the Jeffersons and Good Times and Sanford and Son and Chico and the Man and Mary Tyler Moore herself, women. Uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore, the Scorsese movie. You start to see different experiences and values come to the screen, uh, obviously being expressed in music as well, um, uh, in large part because they had to make themselves relevant to that new generation of consumers And they felt that pressure before the politicians did. I mean, you know, the electorate in America is pretty much always and probably always will be older and whiter than the country overall. And so I think the the impact of generational change is more takes longer to unfold through the political system than it does through the pop culture. And I think that was the case in the early 70s. And I think it's very much the case now. Uh, uh, You know, I mean, Nixon won two elections by mobilizing the voters least happy with the way the country was changing, precisely as those changes were consolidating their dominant position in popular culture and thus really changing the way we live forever. Um, And I think you could argue the same thing is happening now. Trump has shown there's a lot of people who can be mobilized by promising to stop the way the country is changing. Um, uh, But what you can't actually do is stop the change. I mean, the, the, the rising generations are going to set are going to impose their values on the way that we live. And uh, I just think that process is inexorable, as, is as inexorable now as it was in the 1970s. So what started with uh, particularly All in the Family, where they, where they were talking about such um, socially conscious mm-hmm. issues, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We're still experiencing that today, right? I mean, we're, we're, 
we're right. reaping well, all, the harvest, basically. Yes. Well, All in the Family, I think, is the absolute turning point in the history of television, because I think it established irrevocably the idea that the medium was a fit platform from which to comment on American society. And I, in some ways, my favorite chapter in the book, or maybe the most revealing chapter in the book, is I tell the story at great length of how All in the Family got on the air. Um, after ABC had rejected it twice. And right. it was put on the air by, by the way, Michael Eisner was the projectionist at one of the showings uh, for, <laughs> the, um, for the ABC executives who turned it down. But, you know, All in the Family um, was the product of two very unlikely revolutionaries. I mean, Norman Lear, for as influential as he became, uh, there was very little of his work in the 50s and 60s that would have led you to predict this was the guy who was going to transform television. I mean, he was very much mainstream entertainment. I mean, he worked on the Martha Ray show. He worked for Lewis and Martin. Uh, he, uh, you know, him and Bud Yorkin, when they founded their company together, uh, they did Come Blow Your Horn and Divor Divorce American Style. He wrote The Night They Raided Minsky's, um, The Andy Williams Show. You remember The Andy Williams Show? I mean, that was not exactly the Smothers Brothers. Um, but he had this story that resonated with him because, uh, you know, originally this started off as a British half hour, the, the basic construct, bigoted father, uh, you know, liberal son-in-law. And Norman, you know, that reminded him of his story with his father, Herman. And so uh, the, 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 the show, Till Death Do Us Part, came to, you know, um, uh, uh, came to his attention through a variety of sources. He went out, he optioned it, tried to get it made on ABC. They wouldn't do it. And it got to CBS and into the hands of someone who was an even more unlikely revolutionary than Norman, a guy named Robert Wood. Did you ever encounter Robert Wood in your- No, I didn't. Days? No, I didn't. Norman, I know well, but not, so not Robert. Robert but, yeah. Wood, basically the same age as Norman, graduated from USC, football fan, rah-rah booster, you know, would not be caught reading Sartre, you know, uh, <laughs> was was a sales guy, went up the ranks at KNX and then KNXT here in Los Angeles. Um, uh, love Nixon, love Reagan, hated student demonstrators, eventually kind of got promoted from LA to New York and ascended up the ranks at CBS. One of the first things he did after he became CBS president in 1969 was to cancel the Smothers Brothers, who were really the CBS's first attempt to mm -hmm. uh, plant a flag in the changing America. But because of his urban background, Wood was convinced, mostly by the business staff, that CBS had to get younger and less rural, right? I mean, you know, right. as, someone, as someone wrote, how many farmers were watching CBS didn't matter <laughs> unless you were trying to sell tractors. <laughs> so he, of all people, after ABC said no twice, he gave um, all the family the green light. And, but it was a really arduous process even after he gave it the green light. And I think I, you know, I tell the story at some length in the book of, of, the, of the final stages of getting it on the air in January oh, yeah. 1971, it was touch and go until the very last minute. Right. But, you know. And, and after it, it aired, after it aired, there was that first segment, as you point out, there was still a lot of people who were very nervous about it and not sure they'd done the right thing. Right. Yes. And well, yeah. before the first segment, they put on a disclaimer. Like there's like a disembodied <laughs> voice reading, like, you may not like this, but we thought it was worth trying. <laughs> Rob Reiner said to me, he's like, well, wait a minute, like, well, you know, we're like, you're going on the air and you're already, you know, kind of trying to warn people they may not like it. That doesn't seem, and, you know, 
it went on the air immediately after Hee Haw, which was just perfect. Oh. I mean, kind of like, you know, it really was the turning of the page from one era to another. Boy, I'll say. Uh, and back to the music field for just a second. I mean, yes. it is striking to me. Again, I knew so many of them. But when you think about the fact this was a time when Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Don Henley, you mentioned Irving, Irving, Irving uh, Azar, Graham Nash, David Crosby, Joni Mitchell, yeah. they were all at the Troubadour, right? They yeah, were working together. And, and they were, yeah, and they were working together and playing together and writing songs together and singing each other's songs. Uh, what an incredible, um, you know, timing and collection of talent. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I think that if you add up everything, if you add up James L. Brooks, Larry Gelbart and Norman Lear on the one hand and Warren Beatty and Francis Ford Coppola and Jack Nicholson and Robert Town and Arthur Penn, uh, plus the four that you, you know, the five or six you just mentioned, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronsack, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, uh, Nash and Crosby. You add all of that up, all of them in the same place at the same time, all producing on all cylinders. That, that's what initially drew me to the book, by the way. I mean, just the, yeah. the incredible confluence of talent. I, I think that's comparable to anything that you would talk about as a 20th century kind of cultural uh, lodestar, yeah. you know, whether it's Paris and yeah. the literary world, uh, the modern art world in New York in the 50s. Um, and I know it's an unusual, you know, people aren't used to hearing that about L.A., but I think L.A. in the early 70s can go toe to toe with any other city at any point in the 20th century for a collection of, of cultural uh, talent. But what was really striking about the music side was what you alluded to. You know, I call it the Republic of Rock and Roll. It was a period in which there was incredible collaboration and support. Yeah, there was jealousy and, you know, people would kind of get, you know, their nose bent out of shape mm -hmm. when um, one one succeeded before the other. By and large, as Danny Korchmar, the guitar, guitarist who was also there at the time, said to me, you know, it wasn't like we thought there was only so much success to go around. We thought we were all going to succeed and everybody else was going to come with us. Um, and so Jackson Brown lets Linda Ronstadt record Rock Me on the Water before he does. Yeah. And even more famously, he lets Glenn Fry finish Take It Easy and put that <laughs> yes. on the first Eagles album before he does. And people, you know, Graham Nash said to me, you know, you would bring your guitar on Saturday night and people would kind of be like, hey, this is what I'm working on. And you'd be sharing ideas. And even I think Jackson Brown was the one who said, that, you know, this was a period, probably the only period in which not only the musicians were hanging together, but the executives and the agents and the producers. And there was there wasn't this sense of hierarchy or barriers. It was that they were all kind of swimming, I guess sometimes literally, uh, in the same pool and, mm -hmm. um, you know, sharing, <laughs> sharing ideas. Uh, and I, uh, you mentioned Jerry Brown. You know, uh, again, I was working for Jerry. I just I started working with Jerry in 75. But Jerry was right in the middle yeah. of it. I mean, he brought politics into that. He lived in Laurel Canyon, sure where the Eagles lived and everybody else just about. He dated Linda Ronson. Okay, but did you know, here was the thing I didn't know and learned from interviewing her, that they had dated once before they I became famous. I, I must admit, I did not know that until I read your book. I, yeah, knew, her, she tells the I knew the second, second generation dating process, yes. but not oh, the first. They meet again in 76 when he's running for president, and there's the big concert out at Landover, I think, uh, at the old uh, arena that DC had before they moved downtown. And so they met and they have this big famous romance. But she told me that when he was secretary of state, 
and was looking at running for governor. So it must have been like 72-ish. They went on a date. Um, you know, he, he, he wanted to date her. He tra- he, she said he tracked her down, even though she had changed her phone number. Somehow she, he got her phone number. They went out on a date. And she had been reading a book or article that called for the legalization of prostitution. <laughs> and she said, I spent most of the dinner telling him that this should be part of his platform if he, re- if he ran for governor. And she said, you know, he looked at me like I had horns coming out of my head. <laughs> and it took like five more years for them to get back together after that. <laughs> so um, you, you talked, you, you mentioned, uh, I'm always interested uh, as a somewhat author myself um, in how people go about the writing style and the writing process. You, you mentioned you talked to about 100 people in this book. Obviously, you spent a lot of time talking to Linda and to Norman Lear and others, you can mm-hmm. tell. Um, what did you learn from those interviews? I mean, the, the interview with Linda was fascinating to me, right? Yeah. She really- the, the, you know, obviously, I learned a tremendous amount of specific things from the interviews, uh, but I also got a much better sense of the time and the period. And mm-hmm. um, first of all, there is a difference between inter- and, and and I think this is more clear to me in this book than other books I've written. There is a difference between interviewing men and women about historical huh. uh, periods because How so? men, by and large, are all brave Ulysses. They are there to tell you the story of how they went forth and conquered. That's pretty <laughs> much what they tell you. Like how I triumph over the Cyclops and how I got through, you know, Cilium Trigus. And it's, it's, it's this kind of story. And, and, you know, there can be adversity in it, but it's like, it's basically how I went forth and conquered. That's pretty much what men tell you. And it's, you know, it's revealing. Um, uh, women, uh, not to be too broad a generalization, rarely do women tell you that story. Women are much more sociologists or anthropologists, and they will tell you much more about the environment in which everybody was operating, kind of the society in which they interacted. I mean, I thought the mm-hmm. I, I, I think the two most perceptive interviews I had were Linda Ronstadt, who is unbelievably perceptive on talking through the group dynamics of this generation of artists, and also quite candid, as you saw in the book, on her own struggles to yeah. kind of achieve uh, the breakthrough that she finally does in 1974. Like, well, and also Angelica Houston, who just, I mean, she's written memoirs, so it shouldn't surprise me, but just was incredibly sharp and insightful on just the way people, I mean, her her uh, analysis of the relationship between Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty is worth the price of admission in the book alone. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I and it, um, because Beatty and Nicholson, uh, I think one of the most interesting stories I tell is you know Beatty and Nicholson were born three weeks apart, but and and we think of them as peers, but Beatty became a star eight years before Nicholson did. And right. Beatty spent the entire decade of the 60s literally in the penthouse at the Beverly Wilshire, while Nicholson was trying to scratch out a living in Roger Corman movies. Um, and I, I love this image, which kind of came up and you know, kind of became clear in multiple interviews into the process with Beatty. You know, Nicholson and all of his buddies, Fred Roos and uh, Monty Hellman and just a whole generation, Sally Kellerman of the people, Robert Town, people who had met in acting class in the 50s. I mean, they were kind of locked out in the 60s. They weren't really welcomed into the mainstream studios. And they loved, like everybody else, 
uh, the, uh, uh, kind of the cutting edge film people, they loved all the French and Italian movies, right? And so they would go see them at the old, uh, the foreign movie houses at, in LA. And then they would like sit up in these, you know, ratty coffee shops till the middle of the night in 63 and 64 and 65, talking about the latest Godard or Truffaut or Fellini. Meanwhile, Warren is literally up in the Hollywood Hills, you know, <laughs> having dinner and drinks with these, you know, same directors, you know, and yeah. um, and because Beatty and Nicholson became such fast friends once they met, you know, we think of them as essentially peers, but they really tell the story of Hollywood. As I try in the book, I try to tell the story of Hollywood in the 60s through their experience because Beatty was on the inside. And it mostly produced dead ends in the movies. And Nicholson was on the outside. And it, I mean, he ended up in the Philippines, you know, dodging scorpions and, and filming thrillers. <laughs> um, so it's just a very uh, – and, and, and Angelica Houston was just amazingly perceptive about kind of their relationship, the relationship between Nicholson and town – uh, similar, similar um, uh, uh, Mary Kay Place, similar Linda Bloodworth Thomason. I mean, Linda Bloodworth uh, Thomason, who went on to create, uh, what was it, um, Designing Women in the 80s or early 90s, I, she was one of the few women screenwriter, uh, uh, scriptwriters in those years. And her ability to talk about like Larry Gelbard versus James L. Brooks is, mm -hmm. you know, really very, very perceptive. So I, I thought that was an interesting dynamic, you know. Men are, men are the heroes of their own stories, and women are more likely to be the observers of the society in which they are a part. Uh, just, just one final point on the political side. Um, another figure that we haven't talked about that, that prom that's very prominent in your book, uh, Tom Hayden. Yes. Uh, quite an impact. And his campaign manager, Bill Zimmerman. Yes, uh, right. Two of them. Well, you know, I think... You know, not to mention as, as, Jane Fonda, right? Not to mention Jane Fonda. I think, as you can tell from what I've been saying, I think the fundamental question, you know, obviously there are a million things going on at once in movies, music, and television. But I think there is a through line uh, through the popular culture of the early 1970s. And it is the question of what of the ideals of the 60s could be preserved into the 1970s, which was obviously mm -hmm. stonier political soil, the fundamental transformation of American society that the social movements of the 60s envisioned was not going to happen. So what could be preserved from the old ideals and brought into the new decade and made relevant? And I do believe Jerry's campaign in 1974, with its focus on environmentalism, on in more inclusion, of uh, people of color and women uh, of a uh, kind of age of limits. I think it is really, maybe along with Gary Hart that same year, one of the first efforts to road test that in a political sense of like, how can these ideas be reshaped and packaged in a way that you can actually win elections while embracing them? Uh, and I think that was what All in the Family grappled with every week was essentially the terms of surrender for Archie's generation to the new rules that Mike and Gloria embodied. Hayden and Fonda are another, as I tell the story, are another version of that because the Absolutely. year 1974 is the year they kind of crawl in off the ledge. I mean, it starts in 72 to some extent, but you know, the late 60s and early 70s, they were spiraling out toward greater and greater alienation from American society uh, to the point where she ends up on the you know, uh, on the gun in, in, in Hanoi. And he's writing in the New York Times about, you know, violent civil war. Um, uh, but as it becomes clear that this is not going, you know, there is not going to be, you know, kind of some sort of, uh, you know, seven revolution, days, uh, whatever, you know, 10 days that shook the world. Um, 
how do you make yourself relevant? How do you achieve change that advances the ideals you care about? And Bill Zimmerman, who's a brilliant guy uh, um, uh, who comes out here to work for Hayden in their Indochina peace campaign in Fonda, I tell the story. I think that they are revealing of the story of really many of their contemporaries who face that same question. How do we take our, I mean, how do we take our ideals and find a way to make them relevant in more mainstream society, in our communities, in our families, in our careers. And the Hayden Fonda story is pretty intense and you know uh, acute, uh, both in terms of the political uh, kind of repositioning and rethinking that they had to go through, but also what was happening in their lives and their relationship. I mean, Jane Fonda said to me, you know, I was basically drowning when I met. Tom Hayden. And, um, uh, you know, in many ways uh, he saved her, but it was, you know, it was not, uh, it was not a rescue without its uh, rough edges because he, he was also, you know, tended to be somewhat dismissive of her mm-hmm. and, and the story of him in LA. I mean, if people who saw the trial of the Chicago seven, I kind of pick up Tom Hayden like the next day. And it's really what comes next, which is where he moves to Berkeley, founds right. a commune that includes mm-hmm. uh, our mutual acquaintance, Robert Shear. Uh, of the formerly the LA Times, and eventually Hayden gets thrown out of the commune because he's too much of a male chauvinist pig, basically, and he arrives in Venice as a completely broken person at a point when Venice is not the the land of the Venice Cube that it is today. It's kind of <laughs> you know, it's kind of drug addicts and 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 outpatients, and that story of how the two of them really rebuilt their lives. Uh, you know, after being marginalized, I think it's one of the most powerful that I tell. Uh, it is indeed. So uh, you've been very generous with your time, Ron. Again, love the book, Rock Me on the Water. Uh, let me just ask you finally, how do you yes. rate the scene today? I mean, is L.A. still kind of the mecca for music, film, television, and politics, or uh, has it moved well, I, on? I, you know, I, I can't answer as conclusively as I did about then because I uh, you know, yeah. don't spend as much time in What's it. What's your but sense, though? You live there? I live here. And I will say that there are, you know, what made the early 70s unusual is that all three cherries on the slot machine lined up and the music, movies and television, as well as politics, were all operating at a high level of innovation and, and kind of fresh thinking. And I do wonder if we are heading back into a positive period, because you see two things that are uh, converging in a way that will allow for more personal expression than we have seen really for most of the last 40 years on the movie side and uh, from the, the, the last quarter century uh, of the 20th century on the TV side. And that is, first, the society is getting you know panoramically more diverse and very quickly. So in the same way that the emergence of the baby boom forced TV and movies to open the door to new voices and a way to stay relevant to their changing audience, clearly there is more pressure on the gatekeepers than ever before to allow a more diverse set of filmmakers and TV makers to say things because it's it's reflecting their audience. And then at the same time, the distribution, the economics of of, of the industries are changing in a way that allows, I think, more particular, in some ways, narrow cast um, uh, uh, stories to make economic sense. I mean, what happened in Hollywood is by and large, I mean, it's a little simplistic and it's not fair, but essentially the blockbuster killed the auteur movies of the early 70s, or at least edged them aside uh, because the, the returns could be so high 
um, for uh, especially the special effects movies, you know, whether it was Jaws and Star Wars and later all the comic book movies and so forth, that th- that's where the studios put their time and money. And once you got into a scenario where you had, where you had to open at 2000 theaters in order to break even and, the, you know, much less also able to open at, you know, 500 theaters in China. Um, there was less willingness to do these kind of um, stories that reflect the experience of a narrower range of the of the society. But now in the streaming era, not every movie has to make four hundred million dollars to make sense. Right. And I think I think if you look at the Oscar nominees in the big categories this year, you'd say Nomadland, One Night in Miami, uh, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Trial of Trial. So, I mean, we're, we're sort of getting back to that. That's a level of concentration of socially aware films that we haven't seen in quite a while, maybe not even since the period I'm talking about, writing about. Right. Um, and so I do wonder if demographic change combined with economic change, the same forces that produced the early 70s, uh, might give us another round of another kind of golden age of socially aware filmmaking uh, and and music making and certainly in music uh, and TV making and certainly in music it's the same thing. I mean, just look mm-hmm. at the Grammy. Look who's look right. who's on stage. It's a new America that is presenting itself there before it does in the election returns. Well, we look forward to your uh, capturing uh, the new golden age in your, <laughs> in another book. While we thoroughly enjoy "Rock Me on the Water." Uh, your take on the Golden Age in 1974 uh, in Los Angeles. And by the way, um, we encur- I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I love the book myself. I encourage you to buy it and to read it. And there's a, uh, a link to purchase the book on the edit notes of today's podcast. Ron Brownstein, great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ron, for your time. Congratulations again. So much fun, Bill. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's podcast. Again, the book is Rock Me on the Water. It's a great read. You will love it. There's a link to purchase the book on the episode notes for this edition of the Bill Press Pod. So check that out. And meanwhile, thank you so much for joining us. Take care of yourselves. Keep yourself strong and safe. And come back and join us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.